open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for calling this church into existence. Thank you for giving us the calling, the specific calling, to not only make disciples, but to do so in a multicultural context. And really, Lord, what we celebrate as abnormal should be the norm. You never called for your church to be segregated. But unfortunately, because of our sin, we have been. But I thank you that you're always doing a new thing. I thank you, Lord God, that you are moving us towards that unity, whether we come willingly or we're fighting it. Thank you, Lord, that you've encouraged us to pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we continue to have a vision of heaven and may we have the courage to pull heaven down to earth into our own lives that we can walk with the poor that we can stand with women and with men that we can do life with people of other ethnicities not just on Sundays but Lord in our lives so thank you thank you Jesus for what you're doing Thank you for this church. Help us to fulfill that vision you've given us. We love you, Lord, and we honor you. Bless this word as we continue to delve into advocacy and justice. For such a time as this, speak to this church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First Chronicles chapter 12 Verse 32 says something about the tribe of Issachar. The Bible says that the sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And you know, we are called to be like the sons of Issachar. We are to understand the times in which we live. And we're also to ask God to give us the wisdom the grace and the strength to know what to do in the times in which we live in. And I believe God is, he's always up to something. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that my father is working and so am I. There is never a time that God is not working and there is never a time that he is not watching over the city and working in the city. And he is moving us towards a beautiful end. And this beautiful end is the triumphal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And until that time, there's going to be this great line of demarcation between those who are righteous and those who are not righteous. As we prepare for the coming of the Lord, there will be this line drawn, if you will, between darkness and light, between saints and ain'ts, sheeps and sheep and goats, that the Lord is coming and there will be a separating. And I also believe that he is answering prayers. 
prayers that we've been praying, not only in this generation, but our ancestors have been praying, following up on what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that his disciples would be one. Not the same, but one, as he and the Father are one. And they are not the same, but they are unified. Jesus said that he wanted his body, because he is the head of the church, his body to be unified in purpose, to be unified in practice, because it's a demonstration to the world of the power of the head and that we follow his dictates. So the church is to understand the times. What is God doing in the time? I believe God is allowing any and everything that can be shaken to be shaken, according to the book of Hebrews. He's shaking some things up, or I might add circumstances which come from our sin or the consequences thereof are shaking up things in the earth. And if you've been watching the news lately, you know that we need to be praying for Starbucks. If you've been watching the news lately, Starbucks is a microcosm of what's been going on for a long time in our country. Things that God is not pleased with. Things that for many of us, we didn't know happened the way that it happened. And as Will Smith, a fresh, the Fresh Prince, uh, once said, he said, uh, racism is not increasing, it's just being filmed. And I believe God is allowing these things to come up so that we can deal with them properly once again. Because in generations past, we didn't always deal with these things when they were presented to us. We either made excuses, we either, you know, tucked tail and ran as the church, but God in his mercy is bringing up these things, this pus, if you will, so that we can deal with it properly. You know, in the Civil War, when battles would be fought by shorelines and soldiers would die in combat and in the water, their bodies would go down to the bottom of that riverbed or that lake or wherever they may have been, and they would lodge there. And so in order to get those uh, fallen soldiers and comrades up from the bottom of the lake bed or the riverbed, um, they would throw dynamite into the water to cause a disruption so that what was lodged below might be loosed rise to the surface so they can then take those dead bodies and give them a proper burial. And the things that we've been lodging, the things that we've been hiding, the things that we've been uh, overlooking as it pertains to how we relate to one another, not only in the world or in the country as U.S. citizens, but above all, how we relate to each other as Christians, God is saying, I'm going to allow a stick of dynamite to shake this stuff up so that what you've been trying to sweep under the carpet, you can't keep sweeping anymore. You've got to face this and deal with it the way the children of God ought to deal with it. We ought to lead the world in what reconciliation looks like. And so God in his mercy is answering the prayers of our ancestors to say, you need to face this. Jesus is coming again. Let's forgive Let's strategize and not just apologize. Let's get this thing together. Can we do it in our generation? And as my elder said, I can't answer for anyone else. I'm going to answer for myself when I stand before the Lord. And the question is going to be, did I do what I was supposed to do in my generation? 
The Bible says that King David served his generation and went to sleep. So when you go to sleep, will it be said that you served your generation? Did you help bring people together or were you part of separating people in the earth? Oh, we got enough of that. But several things encouraged me about what happened at Starbucks. Several things encouraged me. Number one, the two black men remained calm. Had they not been calm, that thing would have spun into a different direction. Number two, the police did not verbally or physically endanger the two men. And, and, and we shouldn't have to thank God for that, but we need to because that's not always the case. Uh, I love police officers. We have police officers in this church. But police officers are like pastors. Not all of them are right. Uh, 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 thirdly, Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson moved quickly to apologize. And I know for some of us that wasn't good enough. But again, we better be careful if we act too sanctimonious and when someone apologizes, we don't know people's hearts, and we don't need to judge this man's heart, but from what I sensed, he seemed sincere, and he seemed broken, and that is the beginning towards moving towards repair. It begins with an apology, and then from the apology, we move into strategy, and we know that they developed a strategy to shut down 8,000 stores in the United States on May 29th so that 175,000 of their employees may go through a day of implicit bias training. And once again, somebody must say, that's not enough. But I want to say that it's more than what many other companies have done. So stop being. And unless you're in the seat of leadership, it's always easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and, and talk about what they should have done. But I got to give this man credit for humbling himself, saying, I not only apologize on the air, but I'm coming to apologize to these people face to face. I love that. That's integrity. The police commissioner, Richard Ross, apologized for how he misjudged the situation. I appreciated his humility. Uh, I tried not to judge his heart. You mean to tell me you didn't know about the culture of Starbucks? That people can come in and just sit down and not buy anything and have many. You didn't know that culture? Okay, I'm going to trust you. You say you don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee either, but I know the culture of Starbucks. <laughs> but hey, I'm going to give that brother some grace like I would need. But I appreciate him coming back and apologizing. You don't see that. Is God at work? Because for him to work, it's going to take humility. You cannot unite people who won't be humble. If you're prideful, you can forget any kind of reconciliation and unity. But the thing that blessed me the most in this was this. Some of the white customers served as advocates in the moment. You, you, you can't go past that too fast. There were white people who stood up and said, what is going on is unfair. Now, there was one, Melissa DePino, who filmed the exchange that has now gone up to 11 million views. She said, all the other white people are wondering why this has never happened to us when we do the same thing. We come into the restaurant, 
We ask to use the restroom. We get the code or the key to use the restroom. We don't get arrested or have the cops called on us. We come there and have meetings for hours and never buy anything. And we're wondering why are they being treated differently than we are? I'm so glad they spoke up. You know why? Because sometimes white people's voice is more valid than a black person's voice when it comes to these kinds of experiences. So they were using their privilege to help somebody else out. Oh, yeah, okay, you don't like it, but that's all right. I'm going to keep on going. <laughs> and then there was Alan Yaf. He was the white businessman who came to meet with the two brothers. And he could be heard saying to the arresting officers, this is discrimination. This is ridiculous. What did they do? Are you treating them like this because they are black men? And I'm so glad he spoke up in that situation. So the white woman spoke up, the white man spoke up, but don't miss this either, because the white fellow sitting at the table next to the two black brothers, go back and watch it. That brother got up and just tried to tip on up out of there. <laughs> and he is a type of many other white people who I ain't touching it, I ain't saying nothing, I ain't doing nothing, my, my name is Bennett, I ain't in it, I'm gone. But thank God for the two who chose to be advocates because had black people tried to advocate at that moment, once again, that thing may not have turned out the way that it did as far as a peaceful uh, uh, altercation. Uh, but thank God that they spoke up because it, yeah, they saw the racial profiling but they saw human dignity and they said, no, this is wrong. We don't care who it is, but because it's black men and this country has a history, we've got to speak up and I'm so glad they did because an advocate is someone who will stand up, who will speak up, who will give up and then think up. If you were here with us last week, you know what I'm talking about when we went through the book of Esther or at least her moment in chapter four, but an advocate is going to speak up to the powerful on behalf of the powerless that they may receive some power. They're gonna use their access, their authority, and yes, their privilege to help others. They're going to speak up. But not only will they speak up, they're going to stand up as well. They're gonna let it be counted that they're gonna stand up for those who are marginalized and being mistreated. They're just not gonna pray about it, but they're gonna do something about it. And then they're willing to give up comfort they're willing to give up money. They're willing to give up time. And if necessary, depending upon the cause, an advocate will give up his or her life. But then an advocate is also going to think up strategies. We're just not going to protest. We're going to ask for wisdom from the Most High to give us strategies to be able to undo what was done so that what was done doesn't happen again. We're thinking up strategies. So an advocate is one who will stand up, speak up, give up, and even think up. Advocates are persistent people. They rarely ever take no for an answer. They can be seen as either heroes or irritants, depending upon how you look at them. Some people see them as a hero, or some people see them as an irritant. Some of you have come to church excited about this series. Others of you are irritated by this series. And I thank God that you're irritated because the fact that you're here, meaning that you're still open to what God wants to show you. Because the irritation hopefully is going to lead to some kind of revelation and healing. Um, and as you're being irritated, think of this. 
within your family, within your church family. You may not experience this, but in your family, other people are experiencing racism right here in this church. So although it may not come down your street and knock on your door, it is coming down the streets of other people in your church. And the Bible says when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. So we have compassion for our brother who is burdened, for our sister who is burdened. Because within the last three and a half weeks, three families from this church have had their children called the N-word in their school system. And these are two elementary children and one junior high has gone through racism. And when they come to their pastor looking for advocacy, pastor needs to then go and irritate those systems and say, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You're not going to call our children that. And I don't need to just deal with young children. My own son, uh, probably two months ago, had to deal with the N-word at his former place of work. And we had to go up there and deal with that situation to make sure it was a safe environment. But we were encouraged to have mercy on the perpetrator and basically to tell my son, you just be strong and we're going to have mercy on this kid who comes from a broken home and he's saying these kinds of things towards you. And I'm like, okay, we're going to have some mercy, but let's make sure that y'all just don't tell my son, you be strong and keep moving. No, his soul was violated in that moment and I need y'all to understand this. And because they couldn't understand that, uh, I almost called y'all to boycott the place. We almost had a boycott. Oh, it was that close. But we humbled ourselves, and again, we extended mercy. We kept moving, but sometimes you have to advocate. So what may irritate you is helping someone else out. An advocate is driven by a passion for justice, and justice, simply put, is doing the right thing all of the time for all of the people. That's justice, doing the right thing all of the time for all of the people. Whereas injustice is doing the wrong thing most of the time towards certain people. That's what injustice is, doing the wrong thing most of the time towards certain people. And when certain people keep catching hell, when certain people keep getting profiled, when certain people find themselves under the boot of someone else, that's injustice. But America would like to say, no, that's a moral problem. They are suffering because they're being immoral or amoral. Now, sometimes that may be the case, but we can't remove the power of systemic reality and just try to make it be like it's their choices that's bringing this on. But no, there's a system that causes these things to happen because what were those brothers doing? They were sitting there, got there early. Brothers got there early. The meeting was supposed to be at 4.45. Brothers got there at 4.35. <laughs> Brothers got there early, and then they went. One of them said, I got to use the bathroom. They said, no, you can't use the bathroom. Then they sat back down, and they said, uh, uh, the barista came. Would you like something to drink? And the brother's like, no, we have our own water. You know, we're waiting on someone. Well, that person, within two minutes of the men coming in, called the police. So within two minutes, and I'm going to deal with this next week in a message uh, called uh, Dark and Lovely, that what is it about black folks that you're afraid of us and you're going to call the police in two minutes? Oh, we got to deal with this because we can't recover from something that we're still in denial that we have. You know, there's a problem here in America. 
and it won't get better by over-spiritualizing things. And no, we won't all agree on this. We're not a monolithic people, but hopefully we can be one without being the same. We have a myriad of opinions, but at the root of this, let's make sure we continue to deal with what is just and what is unjust. Hang with me, please, during this series. Again, what may irritate you is encouraging somebody else. We should advocate for the voiceless, for the powerless, for the defenseless, and the exploited on personal levels, on social levels, on institutional levels, on legal levels, and even legislative levels. Some of us stay at the personal level. And this is where we say, I have a white friend, and I try to treat him right, and I have a black friend. We stay on the personal level. And that's the beginning as we're in this continuum of redemptive work for Jesus. It can't stay there because God is going to call us to move to the social level, to speak up and speak out. God is going to call us to say some things to that uncle who's bigoted because your black son is dating a white woman. And, and he's going to call you to say something in love, to speak up, to be an advocate for your son to that bigoted uncle. Whatever the case, you're going to go from the personal to the social and then into the institutional where you'll look around and say, why is it that everybody who works here looks like me? Let me just go find out. I know there are qualified people who don't look like me who can be in this office with me. Let me do some research. Now, the minute you start moving towards advocacy and you start doing some research, uh, you might disappear because some folk don't like that stuff to be brought up. <laughs> so, and the reason why the Bible says so much about justice, but our pulpits say so little, is because when you start messing with justice, folks start messing with you. And, and when you start messing with justice, you're messing with folks' money, and folks start messing with you. But we're going to keep on doing what God calls us to do, because we're not afraid of man. We're not afraid of what man can do. God's called us to be people of courage. So we'll advocate on these levels and into the legal level and even legislative or political level. Some of you are going to run for office because you say, man, I think I can make a change if I run for office or for the school board rather than just saying what's wrong with them. You join them in order to make a change. Cornell West says that justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is love with clothes on. We should advocate because Jesus is the advocate. He advocated for us to the Father. He advocated for the poor and for those who were disenfranchised, the last, the lost, the least. And if we're being conformed into his image, somewhere along the line, we should be advocating for people. Listen to this. The essence of the gospel is empowerment of the powerless. That's the essence of the gospel. What do you mean by that? We were without hope. We had no power, but God came to give us hope and to give us power. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. The essence of the gospel is empowering the poor in spirit. Whether you are poor in pocket, we are all poor in spirit. Jesus came for the weak in order to make us strong. And if we're to be ministers of the gospel, somewhere along the line, we can just not be content in preaching a plantation gospel that cares about people's souls going to heaven, but is, will leave them living in hell alone on this earth. 
We just can't get people converted and leave them where they are. We care about their mind, soul, spirit, and body. That's heavy lifting. That's more than just pray the prayer, write it down, and then send it off to your missions board and say, let me tell you how many came to Christ. No, no, no. Jesus went through Samaria, sat down with that woman, drank out of her cup, touched her personhood because she was more than a statistic. She was a person to him, and that's how the church needs to be. That's how I've got to be. Oh, my Lord. Last week, we looked at Esther, girl. Esther made her stand at such a time as that to be an advocate to save her people, the Jews. Today, I want to introduce you to someone else for the time I have remaining, and his name is Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, and he was a man who's found in all four Gospels. Don't read over them too quick now because you'll miss a blessing. So I'm going to take my time and just milk a couple of things about Joseph that we can learn how he was an advocate so that we can be advocates. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Look at verse 38 of John chapter 19. It says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which one had not yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Let me speak to you on the subject of don't miss your moment. Don't miss your moment. Joseph answered the call to be an advocate. Who was he advocating for? Joseph of Arimathea was advocating for a poor, dead Messiah. That's who he was advocating for. He was advocating for Jesus, a man who had just died unjustly and violently at the hands of the state. Now, we know all of this was ordained by God. It was supposed to happen. But nevertheless, we don't want to, again, over-spiritualize this and miss the humanity in this moment that Jesus Christ was set up from the word go. So Joseph chose to speak up for Jesus when he could not speak up for himself because he was deceased. Joseph chose to stand up for Jesus because a dead man can't stand up in his body. He chose to give up his fame, and as we'll see a little bit later, and possibly even his fortune and his comfort and ease in order to be an advocate in this key moment of church history. And then also, as we see how he oversaw the burial of Christ, he was thinking up a strategy on where to put the lifeless body of Jesus and how to treat it. You see, Jesus did not need an advocate while he was alive. That was impossible. He, he, he was and is the advocate. He didn't need an advocate, somebody speaking up for him while he was alive, but he needed somebody to speak up for him and be an advocate while he was dead. People who die unjustly need an advocate at death because by doing this, you are advocating for the living. If you can call attention to an unjust death 
And what happened in this particular situation, you're saving lives versus if you say that's an isolated event. Well, these isolated events keep on happening over and over and over again, and somebody needs to say something about it and do something about it. And Joseph advocated for Jesus. Advocates are needed for children who die from abortion and infanticide. Advocates are needed to stand up against euthanasia, genocide, communal homicides, deaths, deaths caused by racism, alcoholism, suicide, drug overdoses, and even capital punishment. So we need to stand up. And some of us are going to be called to certain areas. Some of us are going to be called to certain things. And if this is not your call of advocacy, it may be education or health care or whatever it may be, we're all called to not only do good works, but to do works of advocacy to stand up for someone else. Joseph moved when his moment came. Had Joseph not chosen to advocate at this moment for the lifeless body of Jesus, a theological quandary would have developed. Had Joseph not acted, a theological quandary would have occurred. What do you mean? As an executed criminal, Jesus' body belonged to the state. They often left bodies on the cross to be eaten by vultures and other animals. Uh, 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 or they would take the body off the cross and throw the body into a common grave, treating the person like refuse and garbage. But Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet prophesied that the Messiah would make his grave with the rich at his death. Okay, hear that now. There was a prophecy that God's son would make his grave with rich people. So that meant that God would have to move on a rich person to help out a poor person. And that rich person accepted his call to advocate for the poor and a dead man in that moment. So, but, and had he not answered that call and had Pilate kept the body of Christ and, and again put it in a common grave or allowed the birds to devour the body, then a theological quandary was in place. But since God is in control, he said, I'm going to move on my man, Joseph. This is his moment to step up and be an advocate, and Joseph answered the call. And if he wanted to answer the call, God would have moved on to somebody else to say, get my son. He died like a slave, but he's going to be buried like the king that he is. You got to go get his body. You got to go get his remains. You got to advocate for him. So by stepping up, Joseph fulfilled scripture. Just like when we step up, we fulfill scripture. Look at Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. A lot of times, folk don't even see the poor. As Elder Clifton said in our Old Testament class today, a lot of us don't even know any poor people. We don't see them, we don't know them, and we don't hear them, but somehow the system is built to exploit the poor so that the rich can continue to thrive. But we're called to, as Christians, followers of God, to open up our mouths and advocate for those whose voices are not heard or they're not invited to the table. 
Well, if they're not invited to the table, they're at the table when I get to the table. That's the way that it's supposed to be. Oh, my goodness. When your moment comes to be an advocate, don't miss it. When your moment comes to do justice, do it. When your moment comes to be an advocate for the living or for the dead, take action the way Joseph did, by being committed, courageous, and charitable. Oh, I hope I whet your appetite today Will you go home and read about Joseph today in the scripture and all this week. But let me just say a couple of things about him before I take my seat and we go home. Number one, be committed like Joseph was. Matthew 27, 57 says that Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's the best decision we can commit to. Mark 15, 43 says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. This means that this brother, it just wasn't easy believism for him. He was deeper in his faith. And just like uh, uh, Anna and I uh, forget the old man's name at the temple, they were waiting... Simon, they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to them that they would not die until they saw the Lord's Christ. There were some folks operating in the Holy Ghost like that. And apparently, this man, he was waiting for the kingdom. Because to wait for the kingdom means you're waiting for the king. Because the king is the Messiah. Oh, yeah, he had it like that. John 19, 38, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. I'm going to come to that in a minute. Luke 23.50 says that he was a good man. Luke 23.50 also says he was a just man. Just is short for justice. In other words, he was a just man. He did what was right towards all people. And how he treated people was proof that he was a good man. Don't say you're a good man, but you don't treat people right. You can tell a lot about people by how they treat people who can't do anything for them. When you go to a restaurant and you're with somebody that disrespects people who wait the tables, watch out for people like that. If they don't speak to the people and honor the people and acknowledge their presence, watch out for people like that. But we're to give dignity to everyone because everyone is made in the image of God. They're image bearers. They are marvelous and fearfully made in his sight. Whether they are saved or not, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. They're made in the image of God. And we should love them and treat them well because of that. This man was committed. So we need to be committed by being a disciple. We need to be committed by looking for the kingdom. And we need to be committed by being good and just. Oh, that's easy. We got that. But it's gonna, the stakes are about to rise now. The stakes. Are, so, so we got to be courageous after we've been committed. John 19, 38 says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but fearfully for fear of the Jews. That means that he was hanging out with some people who weren't hanging out with Jesus. He was saved in the midst of a culture that was anti-Christ and antithetical to the kingdom of God, even though they claim to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he saw how that group treated people who stepped out from that group, and that caused him to have some fear to not step up. He was a little ashamed of Jesus in those settings. Now, before you throw him under the bus and say you don't want to hear any more about Joseph, uh, when was the last time you spoke up on your job about Jesus. I ain't talking about inviting people to church or tell them you go to church. I'm talking about using his name. I'm talking about praying over your food in his name. I'm talking about wearing your Christian t-shirt, playing your music. Let it be known that you are a Jesus lover. Because a lot of times we'll talk about what other people ain't doing, 
but we are busting the grape ourselves. So don't, don't, because we're afraid of what they might say if we step up and step out. But let me take this a little bit deeper for you. Mark 15, 23 says that Joseph was a prominent council member. What does that mean? He was in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like a Jewish version of the United States Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin had 70 members, all men, comprised of Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, elders, and chief priests. And his 71st member was the high priest. And he led the group called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin exercised civil and criminal jurisdiction among the Jews. They were the ruling council. They helped keep the law. They also had their own police force and all of that. However, capital punishment cases required the sanction of the Roman government. So they could arrest people. They could treat people according to that law with certain things, but they could not put anyone to death, which is why they had to work with the Roman government in order to see Jesus executed. So the Sanhedrin, they were a political group. And when it came to Christ's arrest and his trial, the Sanhedrin operated as the judge and the jury, and the Roman government was the executioner. Jesus was denied a fair trial. Anybody know about that? It still happens. He was denied a fair trial because the men who arrested him and tried his case were biased against him. You can't get a fair case if the people who arrest you and want to see you convicted are biased against you. They stacked the deck against Jesus by even bringing up false witnesses to lie and take him out of context on things that he said because their goal was to see him executed. And when that is your goal, you can't be objective concerning the case. It was already set, and that happens still in today's court of law. The Sanhedrin, which was comprised of religious men, operated like a gang that had political alliances with the Roman government. When religious people get too close to political people, somewhere a compromise is going to happen. Because if you lay down with the dogs, mama said you're going to get up with the fleas. And unless you let the politicians know that you're there in the name of God and not there in the name of a political agenda, you done already sold your soul like Esau gave up his birthright for some soup. You, you done already been bought. But if you let them know you're a prophet or a prophetess, you're God's man or woman, and you're going to speak what thus saith the Lord, and if that political leader has a heart for God, he'll want to hear from you. But if that political leader doesn't have a heart from God, they're going to get rid of you and surround themselves with people who are going to tell them what they want to hear and never rebuke them, never call them out. And that's what we see happening today in Washington as the so-called evangelical leaders surround this president. You mean to tell me nobody has a word of correction for him? You mean to tell me everybody? Oh, let me move on. Luke 23, 51 says that he had not, I got to get this out. He had not consented to their decision indeed. Here it comes. After a while, your conscience, you, you can't do it anymore. And he was not in agreement with them setting up Jesus the way that they did. He, the line had been crossed, and he said, you know what? Enough is enough. Because when you don't consent 
you will soon descend and not be silent. Man, man, you can't, you can't keep consenting. No, no, you're dissenting from the group and you won't be silent because the dissent is to hold and express views and opinions that are at variance with the ones you once held and are still being held by the group you were a part of. And Joseph said, no, I can't do this no more. So when Joseph went to bury the body of Jesus, in a sense, he signed his own death certificate. He buried himself financially because all them financial connections were there. He put that on the line for Jesus. I think Jesus is worth it. He buried himself socially because now they're going to call you names. They're going to talk about you and say that you're left, you're liberal, you're Marxist, you're communist. You need to get back to the gospel. Uh, uh, he buried himself politically. He buried himself religiously. By advocating for a dead man, he was standing against the people he once socialized with. But at some point, we got to make a stand. At some point, we got to stop compromising. At some points, we got to be like Diana Ross and come on out. I'm coming out, and I want the world to know. I got to let it show. I'm coming out. But one of the things that keeps us in the group is this thing called social identity theory. And that speaks to how people relate in society. A person's sense of identity is shaped by in-group dynamics and out-group dynamics. The in-group we associate with becomes an important source of our self-esteem and belonging. The association causes the in-group to look down, to separate from, and even discriminate against people who are part of the out-group. In other words, we're talking about cliques. And so he was part of a clique. But after a while, Jesus started clicking on his soul and said, you got to come up from out of there. Because when the group you're with starts going against Jesus. When the group you with can acknowledge Jesus, the biblical Jesus, it's time for you to get out that group. I don't care if it's a political group. I don't even care if it's your family because Jesus said if you're going to follow me, you got to love me more than you love your own mother and father. And if your mother and father go against me, you got to go against them. That's Jesus. So if your own political party is bugging, you might need to get out that party and become nonpartisan like your pastor. I'm nonpartisan. <laughs> Jesus don't ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. Now I'm going to vote. I must be a good citizen. But sometimes when you align too much, you got to accept all that stuff. And now you go beyond voting for your party. You go to defending the stuff your party does that is not in line with this book. And it's very subtle because you choose to be in the in-group as opposed to stand up and say, I don't want to be in the in-group. I'd rather be in the out-group. Jesus was part of the out-group. Black folks, let me say this to you. White folks, let me say this too. At some point, your racial and cultural group is going to go against the kingdom. Do you have enough gumption in you and courage to stand up and call your group out? Do you have enough courage in you to say, I know you black, but you wrong with this one. I know you my white mother, but you wrong with this one. Don't you just stay there and consent to that because when you consent you're, and be silent, you're complicit. Yes, yes. Oh, no, this is that Jesus stuff, huh? This is this, this that Jesus stuff. And man, I'd rather follow Jesus than follow man any day. I got to work with man. I got to spend time with man. We gotta, but man, man ain't over Jesus. And for Joseph, he said, man, y'all done went too far now. I'm out of here. 
You said, man, he was fearful. Well, his courage began to build because the Bible says in Mark 15, 43, he came and took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate just oversaw the execution of Jesus. Pilate is tired of these Jewish people. But Joseph said, I'm going to take my life in my hands and I'm going to go and advocate. I'm going to use my access into his office to go and talk to him on behalf of this poor dead man. And then he could kill me for this. I know I'm going to lose all my friends and Pilate could kill me, but I don't care because following Jesus, it's time for me to come out of the closet. Everybody else coming out of the closet. I might as well come out of the closet. I'm not ashamed of Jesus and I'm going to make it known now. So he goes to Pilate. He takes the body of Jesus down from the cross. That's an advocate. He's touching on the dead bludgeoned body of Jesus. And my question is, where are the 11 disciples at? No, yo, I better let y'all out. I better let y'all go. The ones who should have been there weren't there. They ran to protect themselves. You may talk about Joseph being afraid of the Jews, but at least when his moment came, he stepped up. The ones who should have been there weren't there. And so God used an unlikely person who was one of them. He was part of that group to come out of the group to stand up for Jesus. Be careful of the people you put down because they ain't in your group. Because they're worldly and, and they, they were gangbangers and they were prostitutes. So they were this so that God will go in there and pluck some of them folk out and use them because the sanctified ones won't go. <laughs> oh, I know I'm saying amen walls and lights. I'm almost done. He went on, man. I love that. And then John 19, 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus. So now Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, now he coming to the light. Why? Because when one person starts advocating, somebody else starts advocating. Because courage and fear are both transferable. And he started transferring courage to his homeboy, who was also in the uh, Sanhedrin. Two of them cats came out and said, enough is enough. You stepping, I'm stepping. I just want to know, are you transferring courage onto people around you or fear on people around you? You know, you better not say anything. You better not do anything. The problem's too big. Let somebody else say, I'm scared. Man, let me tell you. Let me find some people that say like Gideon, all I need is 300 and we can rout the enemy. I don't need a whole lot of people. I just need some people on fire for God. Because, man, when I'm around courageous people, I start getting brave and stuff. Unless we get around deep water. But anyway, I got to keep moving. I got to close. Be charitable. Matthew 27, 57, he was a rich man. Thank God for rich people. God makes some people rich, and he makes some people poor. Some people become rich because they work that way. Some people become poor because of generational things or they make mistakes. Whatever the case, ultimately God is the one who makes the rich and the poor. And in either situation, you may not stay in the economic status that you're in. Rich people become poor. Poor people become rich. But in this case, this man, the Bible says, was a rich man. Mark 15, 46 says that when he came to get Jesus' body, he brought fine linen. He just didn't bring polyester. He bought the good stuff to wrap Jesus up in because he felt Jesus deserved the best. Oh, you're giving Jesus your best. John 19, 40. He and Nicodemus took the body and bound it in strips of linen with spices. In other words, they're taking care to wrap the body of Christ. Matthew 27, verse 60 says, he laid Jesus' body 
in his new tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock. So the tomb that Christ went into was Joseph's tomb, the rich man fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9. That was his uh, mortuary place, but he gave it to Jesus. And what Jesus did in that moment really is a picture of the gospel because he died on that cross for Joseph. He was buried in Joseph's tomb for Joseph, and in three days he was going to rise again from the dead for Joseph. So he identified with Christ by giving up his tomb. Jesus took his place so that Joseph could be free. He gave his grave to Christ. The one born in a virgin womb would be laid in a virgin tomb. God says, you lay my son where nobody's been laid before. Why? He's the king. Oh, man. So this man used his money to help someone who didn't have any money. When Jesus died, all he had were the clothes on his back. And they took those from him and divided his garments. He said, I don't have any place to lay my head. Women provided for his substance. He fed other people, but man, he was poor to identify with the poor. Not only did Jesus become a man, he condescended and became a slave in order to reach those of us who see our brokenness and need for salvation. No matter how much money you make, you should see yourself as broken and in need of Christ. Christ condescended, came low, born of a virgin, born in a hole, and he would be buried in a hole. So when the president says that people who come from these dark countries, it's like being in a blank hole, well, we identify with Jesus, Mr. President, because Jesus was in a, a, a hole when he was born. He'll be put in a hole when he's dead. And Mr. President, if you don't repent, not only will you be put in a hole, but your soul will go to hell. And if you don't repent, oh my God. Pastor, don't do that. There were prophets who rose up and told kings to their face they need to get right. But we've become so politically correct. Don't say that. You might offend somebody. Let the gospel and the word offend you. And I pray for the president. Oh, man. But it's just not on him. But I do believe he's created an atmosphere where it's allowing people to be more overt with their feelings when there was a time they used to be covert. It, they were still there. But what's going on from the top, people are feeling free to just do and say what they want to say. So again, Jesus is going to use this to show who's really with him and who's not. Because a lot of the ones who are marching under these banners of racism, they claim to be Christians. But Jesus said, how are you going to say you love me and you haven't seen and yet hate your neighbor who you do see. Something, you, you can fool some of the people, but God says, I will not be mocked. So somebody's got to preach the truth because in order for repentance to occur, truth must be preached. And when some people hear the truth, they get cut to the heart and repent. Others get cut to the heart and rebel. Which one is it? And then they stone the preacher. And that's just part of the, how it works. But I got to say as I take my seat, man, I'm thankful that this rich man helped this poor man that he helped our Savior. We like to quote Martin Luther King around his birthday and maybe in Black History Month. But let me quote him now. You know, he died on April 4th, 1968. And when he died, he basically died penniless. The only asset he had was his home, which was worth about $40,000. 
because whenever he would get money from his speeches, it would go right back into the SCLC and into the movement. Even when he received the Nobel Peace Prize and received upwards of almost $60,000, rather than putting money aside for his children's college fund, he put the money right back into the SCLC because they needed money to keep operating. And so he continued as he not only was an advocate of nonviolence and passive resistance, God started moving his heart towards the poor. So at the end of his life, he moved away from racial into economic and poverty issues, which is hard to beat. And when he got killed, he got assassinated. Let me back up. When he got shot, Jesse Jackson called Coretta and said, you need to come from Atlanta to Memphis Doc has been shot. The mayor of Atlanta used his money, power, access to make sure she got into a car and could make it to the airport. They held up the flight for her. But en route to the airport, they get to the airport, and they find out that he passed away. He had already died. So they asked her, do you still want to go into Memphis? She said, no, I'm going to go back home, make sure the children are all right. She goes back home. The next day, she gets a call from Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy says, I've already chartered a plane, a private plane for you, so that you can fly into Memphis, get your husband's remains, and fly them back to Atlanta. He didn't ask her what she needed. He already knew what she needed because of what he had been through with his brother. And he says, I got you a plane. So he used his money, he used his access to help this woman to go to Atlanta, get her husband, to go to Memphis and bring her husband back to Atlanta. But not only that, Harry Belafonte, a rich, famous Calypso singer, uh, great not only in the black community, but in the broader context, he loved himself some Dr. King. He saw how Dr. King was living, that he really didn't set money aside, really didn't you know, put money up for his children. So he decided to take out a life insurance policy on Dr. King because he did not have life insurance or a will. And Harry Belafonte came up with a $100,000 life insurance policy so that when the drum major of justice died, his family would have something to begin living on. He wasn't making a lot of money off his books, but somebody, a rich man, stepped in. What am I saying today? When God gives you an opportunity to advocate, especially if you have means, and when I look around this room, we all have some means. We all have, none, none of you missed a meal uh, last couple of days. We, we, we all have means. We're, we're in the top percent of those who are wealthy in the world. When God says, put your money where your mouth is. When God says, advocate for somebody who's died, step in there. The other day I did something very simple that you can do. They're talking about trying to arrest the officer who put the chokehold on Eric Garner and killed him two years ago in Staten Island, New York. And they said, if you sign this petition, uh, it will help move that towards a trial, an arrest and a trial. Something simple. I said, let me advocate for Eric Garner. Let me sign this petition. There's so many things we can do. Little things can add up. But if we turn our head and we miss our moment, if we just say, you know, I'm just concerned about me, myself, and I, that's not Jesus. That's America. So I want to thank God for the rich people who've helped me along the way. You may look at me. I look good in my suit. I know I do. I don't have a lot of money. But over the years, 
at times, God would raise people up to take care of Pastor Chris and his family. When I first came to Franklin and tried to get a job at Christ Community Church in 1993, they said, yeah, we'll hire you, but we're going to give you $500 a month. That's what I said. And, and <laughs> I, I can't live off that. I was making a little over 1000 at a metal shop. And I was leaving that. Dorena was bringing in the bread. She was working for the Department of Human Services. And so I said, man, okay, all right, that's all they want to give me. Unbeknownst to me, there was a white brother named Mark Arnold who advocated for me at that table and said, y'all need to give that brother more money than that. He can't live on that. That, that won't help his house. Matter of fact, y'all need to pay him more because he got more education than all y'all sitting at this table. So they took me from 500 to 900, and I got to thank God for Mark Arnold, because had he not spoke up, I might have been doing the ministry over here and doing like a lot of other brothers having another job on the side. I could go on and on telling you stories of those who advocated for me and a few where I've advocated for others, but my time is up. Next week, I want to talk about why people are, that you don't need to be afraid of black skin or black men. Next week, pray for me as I try to give us a history of how did we get here? We're on sight. We're afraid. Many of us are afraid of black men, especially black men who are darker than other men of color. And even why black men hate black men and we kill black men. Oh, man, this is real. I'm glad to be a part of this church. We're learning together. We're going to do advocacy together. I have a meeting. Stand to your feet. I have a meeting this week with one of our outreach leaders. And we're looking at a way that we're going to be able to get into some of the housing projects this summer to be a blessing, to serve, to encourage people. So, yeah, man. So I'm thankful. Sorry for keeping you over. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, oh God. This is good. Because when Joseph advocated for Jesus, that's when his life mattered. We're only reading about him because he chose to be an advocate in that moment. And Lord, I know that our lives begin to matter when we begin serving other people, standing up for other people. We find life when we lose our life. May this get through to all of us, starting with me. Our natural tendency is to try to preserve and protect. But Jesus, you tell us to give our lives. I pray, God, that you would put us in proximity of people who need our voice. Or we go and we open up the table so that people at the table can hear the voices of our friends tell their own stories. Give us, Lord God, opportunities like never before to come across people who need access to the power that we have. Lord, they're in our families, they're in our neighborhoods, they're on our jobs. But, Lord, we may even have to be more intentional to go where they are. Lord, thank you for what you're doing. Would you show me how to continue to lead and love your people? Bless them as they go. Help us all to chew on this word. And with your strength, help us to apply it. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. And it's according to the power. Lord, let your power work in us. 
to you be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the power now and forever. And the church says, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. But until then, you can count on us to stand in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Amen. Help somebody out this week. Be a blessing to somebody. Serve somebody that can't pay you back.